Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Douglas B. Gibbs, and uh, this is Constitution Study Radio. I go ahead yet to get the music up. Uh, I, I do have a bit of music that we play, but we hadn't done the show in a while, and now we're back. Welcome to the show. My name is Douglas B. Gibbs. I am known as that Constitution guy or America's Constitution Authority. You can learn more about me at douglasvgibbs.com. Right at politicalpistachio.com. I am an instructor an author on books regarding the Constitution, a uh, columnist, I've been on TV, radio, I uh, host a radio program on KMET 1490 AM, and I am here on Constitution Study Radio to work our way through the Constitution bit by bit, piece by piece. The chat room, for those of you who are going to listen live, is still trying to find itself, so I... If you were looking for that, that's why. It's not, <laughs> it's not there. Uh, okay, now, welcome to the program. We're going to get uh, started immediately here. And last week we had an introduction to the Constitution, and I basically went over some base principles. Now we're going to start working our way through the Constitution bit by bit. And then this week I want to really introduce you to the preamble, really talking about how it was constructed, why it was constructed the way it was, and the legalities of it, and then and then next week we will go into uh, the actual text and why the text is worded the way it is, why the language was used the way it was. Now, here is the preamble, and, you know, it's funny because growing up, uh, whenever I re- delivered this, I almost had to sing it, uh, sing it because I had first well, I was first introduced to to the uh, preamble of the United States Constitution uh, by Schoolhouse Rock. So I found myself singing it when I would recite it uh, when I was younger, but uh, I think I finally broke the habit of singing it. But anyway, <laughs> here it is. We, the people of the United States, in order to form more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Now, the preamble in the constitution found its um, roots in English liberties. Uh, Madison and, uh, and the like, the gentlemen who were part of this, they drew their inspiration for American liberty from the doctrines of the British uh, Constitution and and common law and English liberties. And this kind of goes back to the Magna Carta, Magna Carta, uh, June 19, 1215. And when they were going through Magna Carta and writing it and changing it and adjusting it, a minor change at the end of it in the, when the final provision was drafted, replace the term any baron with any freeman. Uh, the barons were the ones that were really behind the Magna Carta, and they were, you know, demanding that, that uh, they be treated fairly and as, you know, as free Englishmen, and then realized it really wasn't just for them. It was for all Englishmen. 
So they changed the term from any baron to any freeman, stipulating to whom the provisions applied. Eventually, the term would would include all, all Englishmen. That was the intention of changing it to any freeman. And, and by applying it to all members of English society, that was a large part of what was the drive between independ- or behind independency in the colonies, because the colonists considered themselves free Englishmen. They were part of that all Englishmen or any freeman idea. And so when it came time to seek fair treatment by the English government, that was the attitude, that was what how they felt inside. When they're being treated like any freeman, all all Englishmen was rejected, then that is when the idea of independency began to rise up, uh, largely inspired by uh, in the sense of getting them off their rocker and really going to do it. And the Common Sense by Thomas Paine was definitely one of the uh, inspirational writings that got them going. But anyway, so when it came time to writing the United States Constitution, the first three words of the preamble was drawn from that idea of any freeman, except for it was adjusted to read, we the people. We the people means any freeman, any American, but just doesn't mean we the people in a democratic sense, but also means we the people of these states that are united through our states. Now, to go back a little bit, the English colonists, their legal codes were largely incorporating liberties guaranteed not only by the Magna Carta, but the uh, 1689 English Bill of Rights. And that came along from the Glorious Revolution, and I'm not going to get real deep into it, but the Glorious Revolution in 1688 uh, was basically the same thing. The, The freemen saying, hey, wait a second, we're not being treated the way we're supposed to be treated. And to make sure that once we get this straightened out again, we are treated the way we should be, we're going to demand a Bill of Rights. In 1689, they got their English Bill of Rights or Declaration of Rights. Now, in the colonies, uh, even though education levels vary, all colonists were familiar with English common law, and they were under and they understood the dynamics of government, and they understood liberty. They knew their history which included the Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights in 1689, which was from the Saxon system. Unlike the the Spanish colonies to the south, the British colonists came from a system that taught liberty and that the king was not above the law. And the authoritarian component of an overpowering monarchy or an authoritarian church in the case of the Roman Catholic Church of that time period had been removed. Now the king was acting in a manner, King George was acting in a manner that was not exactly in line with British liberties. And the colonists knew it. And this is why uh, they demanded that they be treated 
fairly. But now getting back to the American people and how much they understood liberty and all that, Edmund Burke observed uh, in, the very, in the latter part of the 18th century about the Americans, um, and I quote, in no country perhaps in the world is law so general a study. They knew where they came from. They knew what government was. They knew what limited government was supposed to be like and, and, and freedom and liberty and all of that. Now, when we, the, the basis of our um, system also goes back even further than that because the Spanish colonies, which I mentioned a moment ago, that land to the south was conquered land. The Spanish conquistadors had arrived and and conquered that land and slaughtered or enslaved the inhabitants. So we want to talk about genocide against the Indians. It was really the Spanish that did it, not the English. They had authoritarian governors. And they ruled over the land. Spanish conquistadors and those governors eventually uh, took the women to be their wives, whether the women wanted to or not, raped the women, so on and so forth. Uh, that uh, forced integration of the uh, uh, Central American Indian society into the Spanish colonies is part of the reason why uh, your Central American, your Mexican, and Central American, and South, uh, those uh, particular folks do have a larger amount of Indian blood in their in their in their history and in their system. Now, rather than bear the burden of empire, which has been discovered to be expensive, taxing on a nation's armed forces, the English decided that, uh, the king decided that he was going to do, do something that would keep it from being like that. So he granted charters. He offered an entrepreneurial opportunity regarding colonization. He offered the lands along the Atlantic coast to investors and interpreters and families seeking a new start. And in the northern colonies, more specifically, colonists seeking religious freedom were attracted. The, the Puritans in, in, well, remember in, in England, the church was the Church of England, and it was the established church. You could actually be fined or jailed for not attending services or or attending services that were not the Church of England. The Puritans and, and other groups in Great Britain were persecuted for this. So it wasn't long before they began to go to the New World seeking religious freedom. The pilgrims were among that. Now, the pilgrims were Puritans, but they were also separatists. They uh, wanted to be separate from the other groups, separate from the other colonies, separate from the English and the Puritans. They did not want to keep their membership in the Church of England, and they definitely wanted to or be able to organize their worship as independently as possible. So when the pilgrims came across the Atlantic, they um, were told they were they veered off course, and it's, in history books it's often indicated that it, was not, it happened accidentally because of storms or something like that. No, they were separatists. Trust me, they went a little extra far north on purpose. Uh, they colonized north of the Puritans by colonizing their, colonizing their own 
landing at Plymouth Rock. The English colonies, because of this, um, because of it being charters, the English colonies enjoyed an autonomy that the Spanish colonies didn't. To survive in the Spanish colonies, the colonists exhibited a warrior spirit. He had to be a conquistador, conquering the lands of the people who stood in the way, uh, forcing the captured natives into slave labor and marriage for the purpose of accomplishing the task necessary for survival. But see, they were also heavily dependent upon supplies from the homeland. The English colonies didn't get this large supply of supplies from the homeland. They were expected to survive on their own, living off the land. They had to learn how to live off the land. They were like castaways on a desert island, and they had to figure it out for themselves. And they weren't warriors that were trained to kill and conquer. They were families. They were seekers of fortune. They were indentured servants. And they were forced to be self-reliant, personally responsible, hard work, and hardworking in order to survive. And their firearm became their, their, a very valuable tool, not for the purpose of conquering, but for the purpose of hunting and protecting themselves. The English colonists did not attempt to conquer the natives of the, like the Spanish did. Instead, they, well, they were, like I said, they were families. They were, they were entrepreneurs and so on and so forth. They were farmers. They needed to work with the local tribes. They made treaties with the Native Americans in their area because they needed the Native population's knowledge of the land and local food and so forth, and so forth how to grow those foods to help them survive. They didn't want to conquer them. They needed their help. In English colonies, freedom was a, a necessary component of survival because what had happened was, in the beginning, uh, Jamestown and and uh, Plymouth Rock and a lot of these other colonies all tried a communitarianism, a communitarianism type of system where there was a communal uh, what was it? A communal store is the right word for it. Communal store in the central town, center of town. And basically, uh, you know, if you produce something, you put it in the communal store and everybody grabbed from it as needed. You know, the attitude was, hey, we're Christians here. We can, you know, work together and, you know, live in a communal fashion. <coughs> you know, uh, you know, and what we, what we would today call communism or socialism. But what wound up happening... <coughs> the ones who did the most production were really feeding everybody. And those who didn't produce as much found that they didn't have to produce because the big producers were doing the production. And so they could remove what they needed. Kind of the first welfare system, I guess. And eventually what started happening with producers, like, hey, man, I'm doing all this work and everybody else is benefiting. Why am I working so hard? And what wound up happening is people began to starve. In Jamestown, uh, I, I, I can't remember the exact number now, 600 or 700 of the first colonists, like 60 survived. It got to the point where in some cases there was cannibalism, a disease. And so after failing under communi uh, communi uh, communitarianism system, 
say that five times fast. The colonists began to create a system that was that, that, that basically already existed, but but not in the form that they were putting it into, a free market system. This is where the colonists kept more of what they worked for and had the option of trade goods in an open market. And that turned out to work best for the burgeoning society. Suddenly, the colonies went from starvation to prosperity. A free market system, or what we also call a capitalistic system, is what saved the colonies and made them prosper. In the English, uh, in English America, the freemen also adopted the best of the English system. You know, the, of liberty and, and and all of the different things that was good from the English system, while adapting it as necessary to their new circumstances in the colony. Because of course, the colonies were a very different place, a very different society. And from the beginning, the American spirit, what we would consider now to be Americanism, began to grow and. Well, I mentioned them earlier, you know, hard work, uh, personal responsibility, self-reliance, bearing arms, uh, the importance of having an arm, uh, you know, firearm. And so in the English colonies, what was happening uh, because of the way it was all designed is that a person could rise by merit, not by birth. So suddenly it was not about who your mother or father was or your uncles or your grandparents or if you're royalty or not. If you're from old money, it is all about merit. In 13 colonies, men could voice their opinions and actively share in self-government as well. And when the British crown challenged these beliefs, turning to the colonies as a source of revenue to help alleviate the crown's substantial debt and the growing expense of keeping troops on American soil, and the colonists questioned the government in Britain. They challenged the actions of Parliament arguing that, well, without consent and direct representation in Parliament, the acts acts by the motherland were taxation without representation and an act of tyranny against, remember, free Englishmen of the colonies, the freemen, any freemen. So the influence of the Magna Carta and the the demand for liberty, the English uh, Bill of Rights and and English liberties, that, that all existed along the Atlantic coast long before the War for Independence. John Adams uh, wrote to Thomas Jefferson, the revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was effected from 1760 to 1775 in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was shed at Lexington. In other words, these guys knew they were Englishmen. They knew their rights, and they were willing to fight for them. The seal adopted by Massachusetts on the eve of the revolution summoned up to that mood. The image was of a militiaman with a sword in one hand and the Magna Carta in the other. So when it came to writing uh, the Constitution, forming the new government, uh, the social, this written social contract is, uh, is what it was. Uh, the founders determined that, like England under the Magna Carta, the government uh, must be limited by subjecting it to the rule of law. The Constitution, once it was finally ratified by the states, would become the law of the land. And after it had been ratified, it served as a written standard where the authority emanates from the people, not from any governmental body people through their states, though, in this sense. So, so there's, 
So there's a, a, a little bit of a distance from democracy there because we're a republic. And according to the Constitution, no man, not even the country's leader, in the case of England, this was the, the Freeman Englishman's attitude, not even the king, was considered to be above the law. The rule of law, based on the philosophy of the laws of nature and the laws of God, was the basis of constitutional thought in the United States in 1787. So we've got this new government in the fledgling United States, considered to be uh, one of the... Um, one that would be doomed to fail. You know, the Europeans are like, self-government? People can't self-govern. People aren't wise enough. There's a ruling elite that has to understand this. There was this, this concept, this idea, this general will that, that the people weren't wise enough to recognize. Only the ruling elite could, could, could interpret or recognize the general will, the will of people that's good for them without the hand of a divinely appointed wise ruling monarch in place to guide society, culture could not succeed. That was what was being said. So America was seen as a grand experiment, and that grand experiment was a waste of time, according to the Europeans. It would not be long before the rebellious, starving, treasonous, and petulant English colonists came crawling back to the British crown, begging to be readmitted to the empire. And they, they saw they saw the colonists as lawless because they didn't have the strong ruling elite in place. Well, it is true. Without government, there is no law. Without law, there are no enforcers of, of the law, and you know and that that could be anarchy and moving towards uh, you know a, a transitional system that that leads right back to the oligarchy of something like a monarchy. I get it. But in the colonies, the structure was designed to stand the test of time. And it was designed with influences from not just the British system, but the book of Deuteronomy, the old Mosaic system, the Hebrews, Israel. They also took uh, ideas from the old Roman Empire, because remember, the Roman Empire began as a republic, a Roman Republic of which Cicero tried to save. Cicero was wound up in the long run, in the end of the story, I'll keep it as simple as possible and quick as possible, exiled. And while he was exiled, he wrote books, and, and uh, his publisher says, well, who's going to read your writings? You've been exiled. Well, you know who read his writings? Thomas Jefferson. So Cicero may not have been able to save Rome, but he definitely was a large part of the creation of the American system. We took lessons from the Greek states. We took lessons from the republic, of, the republic that had existed in Slovenia. And the research was expansive and extensive. And they understand that a society with a government in place can create an environment of freedom that allows citizens the ability to leave their property, engage in activities away from their homes, this is uh, instead of, you know, it being anarchy. And, and the problem is, though, in history, liberty is the exception. Tyranny seems to be the rule. Tyranny through a unitary state dominates the page of history. Tyrannical governments obtain 
uh, you know, they, they obtain their power and through violence and bloodshed and in a complete disregard for authorities granted justice for the rule of law. I remember one time I was running for city council and I talked about, you know, I, I run on limited government and and the gentleman uh, who had heard me speak says, well, you said you run, you're, you're running a campaign on the idea of limited government. What are you going to take away? Are you going to take away the senior center? Are you going to take away a park? Are you going to take away programs for kids? The idea of what a limited government to him and to me were two different things. Definition was different than mine. My definition of a limited government is a government that operates within the authorities granted to it. His was a government that leans towards anarchy. And, you know, and, and uh, throughout history, you know, you've got dictators that, you know, and uh, tyranny is the rule, liberty is the exception. Governments that protect the freedoms of the people and respect the rights of their citizens is a rare occurrence. Freedom requires the citizens to be informed and involved. Eternal vigilance with freedom comes responsibility. An educated society is one that understands the principles of liberty and teaches those principles to the younger generation to encourage them to be involved in civil activities and local government. Oh, I can't remember what it was now. Uh, uh, Madison said something along the lines that um, if men were angels, we would not need government. But, you know, government's a necessary evil. So if it's an evil, though, you got to limit it. you got to put restraints on it. When it came to writing the Constitution, what happened was the the Constitution before the Constitution was the uh, the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation were like a lamb, too weak. What they needed was a lion, but the problem with lions is lions eat you. So how do you create this lion to keep it from eating you? You limit it. You you limit its authorities. You you spell out its authorities, enumerated powers, expressly granted enumerated powers in a constitution, and then limit them to only those authorities. Of course, like any lion, eventually. The American government grew and became what it is. And because we were never really were a monarchy, we never had a king, we never had a, a, an established church, this political spectrum in the United States also developed differently than in Europe. In Europe, uh, the political spectrum, what is right and left, is really based on old ideas. It, it began in, in France where those that supported the king and keeping a powerful monarchy, established church where the church had control over things, was on the far right. And they assembled in the, on the right side of the, in the assembly room. And on the far left were those that were the ones that brought about the French Revolution. They were the secular, uh, there was a secular list that believed that they needed to move away from the powerful hand of a monarch and 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 overpowering idea of uh, religion and government. And then the moderates sat in the middle. And that is a system from which those who oppose the Constitution in today's political society look at the political spectrum. But in the uh, United States, it developed differently. The battle of left versus right is uh, really became about amount of government. 
it, to the far left is 100% government, to the far right is anarchy. The Constitution is dead center. Not 100% government, it's not anarchy. It takes the idea of a big government and then limits it. So we never had a landlord class of titled nobles. In fact, the Constitution specifically prohibits such a system. Founding fathers desired to break away from European traditions as much as possible, even abandoning much of British common law when defining citizenship. To be a British subject, the rules were weak, and divided loyalties ran rampant throughout the British Empire. The United States as a nation could not tolerate divided loyalties and placed a stronger standard of natural-born citizen upon the president in order to eliminate the opportunity for the ex executor of the American form of government to harbor divided loyalties between the United States of America and any other nation. That way, the new American government could break completely free of any European influence and forge itself into a republic independent from British influence. And in fact, the authoritarian nature of Europe as a whole. In other words, we strove to be less like Europe, not more. Today, of course, our, our politicians want to be more like Europe. No, we broke away from the old style. We go through the preamble, the text, and, and bit by bit, piece by piece next week. Visit me at politicalpistachio.com and douglasvgiddy.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye now.